Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, guys, I have a serious question. In light of that David Ignatius story, should Cash Patel have been included among the worldwide threats briefed last week uh, to Congress? Certainly a Washington-wide threat. Yeah, I mean, or maybe a, a democracy and fate of the republic threat. But, you know, he's now out of office, right? Or is he back on the Hill? Uh, no, he's out of office. He's now a Fox News personality. I oh, of good. So then at most, he's like a global annoyance or perturbance. <laughs> I don't think we can really call him a global threat. I don't know. I read that story. It was pretty terrifying. <laughs> Well, he's definitely getting paid more for his work. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Collusion Was Not an Illusion edition. I'm Shane Harris. Collusion was never an illusion for this group. We didn't really like the word collusion. Collusion, conspiracy, canoodling. We used many forms of that word over the past four years. Yes, there and collusion confusion. But now we have collusion clarity. We do have collusion clarity this week. It's really nice to finally really bring this to a close, you know. No, I'm not sure we have collusion clarity, but we can get to that. <laughs> we'll talk all about it. We're going to get there. Oh, my goodness. I am here. We got a big gang this time in the virtual jungle studio. I'm here with Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, Susan Hennessy, and our good friend Quinta Jurassic. Hi, everybody. Woohoo! Hello. It's, it's, I, th- I think this is, have we had five of us on the podcast for a while? It's been a while since we've had five. It's been a while. Yeah. yeah not since, not since we've been in the jungle studio in exile. Wow. This is really you know. stretching the limits of our technological capacity. <laughs> the bandwidth <laughs> is straining. I love it if you hear a groaning. That's Zach in the background. Oh, my goodness. On the podcast this week, you guys, the Treasury Department says an associate of disgraced Trump ally Paul Manafort gave campaign data to Russian intelligence, quote unquote, leading us to ask, why are we only hearing this now? Another former senior Trump aide was up to even more shenanigans than we knew, the aforementioned Cash Patel. People always see like a Zelig-like figure for someone who shows up. I think we should call him more a Forrest Gump figure for this purpose of this discussion. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is the question, isn't he, it? He's yeah. a little bit more malicious than Forrest Gump. <laughs> I don't know, man. He could get Philip Forrest Gump was, don't ever cross him. Don't believe that nonsense about chocolate boxes. And top intelligence officials testify about global threats. Um, let us start. But not about Patel. Well, in a manner of speaking, but like we're going to get there. Let's just... <laughs> Well, it's going to come full circle, everyone. Just just wait. Let us start uh, with this news. Uh, uh, came, I guess, week before last now. But anyway, the um, Treasury Department in announcing a new raft of sanctions against Russia over its interference in the 2020 election, as well as uh, the SVR's role in the SolarWinds hack, came out with a statement in which they said something extremely eye-catching for those of us who follow Le Faire Russe closely about one Konstantin Kalimnik, who is described in the Treasury Department statement as a Russian and Ukrainian political consultant. In reality, he's actually kind of a right hand to Paul Manafort. And it states during the 2016 U.S. presidential election campaign, Kalimnik provided the Russian intelligence services with sensitive information on polling and campaign strategy. Quinta, you had a really good article in Lawfare looking at this recent action by Treasury. So to start, just briefly remind us who is Konstantin Kalimnik and then explain why that sentence that I just read that came from the Treasury Department is so significant in the context of the broader Russia conspiracy. Absolutely. So speaking of Zelig or Forrest Gump, I think Konstantin Kalimnik is sort of one of those figures who is 
constantly lurking around the edges of the 2016 Russia story and sort of never quite got his his moment in the spotlight. As you said, he's nominally a Russian-Ukrainian political consultant. There's uh, seems to be disagreement within different factions of the U.S. government as to what degree of connection he has with Russian intelligence services, but he certainly was at one point a Russian intelligence officer and may still be, if you believe, the Senate Intelligence Committee. During the Mueller investigation, we found out through the Mueller report that Kalimnik seemed to sort of be Paul Manafort's connection to a number of Ukrainian and Russian oligarchs that Kalimnik had passed Paul Manafort when he was Trump's campaign chairman, a nominal peace plan for the conflict in Ukraine that would essentially end with Russia taking over a lot of eastern Ukraine, so very friendly to Russia, and that Manafort also directed that sensitive polling data from within the Trump campaign be passed to Kalimnik. The big question was then what Kalimnik did with that data. Mueller said straight out that he couldn't determine it. The Senate investigation that I referenced earlier also said they couldn't figure out what had happened. They said that they, there was one clue, but then the, the clue in the report is completely redacted. So it's a pretty big step to go from that kind of question mark to the Treasury Department saying straight up, we know what he did with it, and what he did with it wasn't, say, share it with a Russian oligarch who might have passed it to the Kremlin, which is what a lot of people thought. It's he just gave it to Russian intelligence. So it, it both answers the mystery, and I think it pulls that connection between the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence uh, a little tighter than it previously had been. Ben. Yeah, so... I think the the really interesting question that it raises is how does Treasury purport to know this in the face of both Mueller and the Senate Intelligence Committee saying explicitly that it was an unanswered question? And the more I think about it, the more it seems to me that this is very likely to be intelligence that developed in response to the Senate Intelligence Committee report and or the Mueller investigation. That is, when Mueller re releases his report, it does not say whether Kalimnik is a former intelligence officer or a current one. It says that the FBI assesses that he has ties to Russian intelligence and that he's a former officer, but it doesn't really say what his current ties are. This then seems to have generated some chatter or something that gets picked up. And when the by the time the Senate Intelligence Committee writes, they are able to say he is an, a Russian intelligence officer. And then I wonder if that the release of that report generated some further conversations or whatever that our people pick up that answered the question of what Kalimnik did with this material. Because every basically every time somebody reports on this, we learn a little bit more. And that suggests to me that there's an intelligence stream that is kind of ongoing and you know, we're learning more over time about Konstantin Kalimnik. I can't think of another explanation for how this would have developed. Uh, Susan, then back to Quinn real quick. Yeah, so I have, um, I think sort of Ben's hypothesis is plausible, but I do think there there is at least one and maybe two alternative explanations. Um, so one is that we're not dealing with new information at Instead, we're dealing with information that has always been there and that Treasury is somehow operating with a different evidentiary stand standard, right? So Mueller is including things in the Mueller report that he thinks are sort of um, suitable to submit to a jury, right? A really, really high standard. You know, the SSCI report was a little bit looser, but still sort of trying to maintain that high to medium intelligence confidence and that the Treasury Department might be releasing these documents based on their preponderance of the evidence, 
some sort of lower standard than that. Um, so I, I think that's that's sort of one possibility. Um, the other possibility is that uh, sort of similarly that this information maybe it's more recently developed or maybe sort of small amounts of new information have been shaded. And the difference here is the context in which career intelligence officials are assembling these packages. And so during the Trump administration, when a lot of this information was being initially uh, sort of produced, there was an understanding that every single statement was going to be sort of under a microscope and that anything that was viewed as at all leaning forward in describing the certainty or conclusions or reaching conclusions was going to be, you, you know, you were going to get a lot of pushback from Congress, a lot of pushback from the administration on it. And so there might have been a hesitancy to sort of make logical leaps. And so I could imagine a context in which sort of similar to what Ben's describing now, maybe not game changing new uh, sort of information came in, um, but something that's just a little bit more. Um, and that that plus sort of the context of kind of going back to the ordinary business as usual of intelligence assessments uh, and analysis, that's kind of enough to, to move it over, you know, sort of the, the finish line in terms of including something like that in a finished product for publication. Before we go to Tammy, Quinta, you just wanted to note real quick, too, that there's a difference in the wording between Treasury and the Senate report that they use to describe Kalemnik, right? Yeah, absolutely, which I think is important. So Mueller, the Mueller report says that Kalimnik has, that the FBI assessed him to have ties to Russian intelligence. The Senate report said uh, he is a Russian intelligence officer. So very, very out front. And then Treasury actually uses slightly different language and says that he is an agent of Russian intelligence. So we can query what Treasury means when they say agent. But one possibility is that we're not looking at a sort of linear, more intelligence developed when we get a fuller picture of Kalimnik. But maybe as Susan says, Treasury is drawing a different conclusion than the Senate is by saying he's an agent of Russian intelligence rather than an officer. Right. All right, Tammy. I mean, yes, it it is good to get more clarity on some of these questions that are kind of lingering from 2016 and what happened. But I, I have to say as sort of how does this help us inform forward looking policy questions or intelligence questions or even just public understanding questions? What I'm most interested in is in light of this disclosure, can the IC or can others, you know, outside the government help us get a clearer bead on whether the Russian disinfo activities in 2016 actually tracked in any way with this polling data? You know, can we see any evidence that there was impact in passing this information? And what does that tell us about the level of sophistication or targeting in Russian disinformation operations? And did we see any evidence of that in 2020? In other words, what, you know, how does this help us understand the threat that we face going forward? That's what I would really like to know. No, I, look, Tammy, I, I think that is sort of the essential point. Does, like, let's assume this information is true. Does it change our sort of in an important way, our understanding of what occurred. So I, I sort of think about that on sort of two metrics. One, would it change kind of Mueller's assessment of whether they coordinated with, right? So this is like not the, you know, it's not collusion, but did they coordinate like all the C words we could come up with in the, in the thesaurus? I don't think so. I think this is sort of a, a far enough step removed that it doesn't really change that analysis. And again, um, sort of to the larger point of, okay, so was sharing this polling information somehow changed the way we understand what occurred. And, and based on what we've seen, really, I think the SSCI report is really pretty comprehensive. Facebook and Twitter have put out a lot of public information at this. We do not see a public record that supports really sophisticated or informed targeting. And remember, everything we've sort of heard about the Paul Manafort story is this guy's hugely in debt. He's scrambling. He's just trying to throw any information he possibly can with some hope that it sort of, you know, provides some value and, and sort of gets him out of the, the, the kind of crunch he's in. And so my initial instinct in kind of reading this is, yeah, this is Paul Manafort just kind of, you know, hey, here's what I've got. Here's all my, you know, sensitive inside information. Do with what you will. Maybe Klimnik passed that on, but I, I don't see any evidence that, oh, wait, you know, he was tasked to go in and get this information or like this is, here's the smoking gun that finally proves, you know, that disinformation was somehow more effective in changing the outcome. Quinta and then Ben. 
I think that there's there's a couple points here that it's useful to keep in mind. One is kind of as Susan says, it's not it's not a smoking gun. And we don't know how effective Russian intelligence would have been with the information if they had received it. The other thing is, even if, you know, the Kremlin had received it and cooked up a dastardly plan to micro-target Facebook ads to, you know, white men without a college education in Wisconsin based on this polling data, there is very little evidence that micro-targeting of that kind actually works. People lost their minds over Cambridge Analytica and sort of had this idea that it showed that, you know, somehow the election had been stolen for Trump. There is so little data that shows that ads of that kind have any effect. So even if the Kremlin had, you know, run some masterly operation showing Facebook ads to try to flip people towards Trump, it's just, it's impossible to say that that actually could have worked. Yeah, I just want to add, look, I think this does complicate the no collusion narrative of the Trumpies because honestly, it shows a direct line of communication of proprietary information from the Trump campaign to Russian intelligence, which is not a small thing. That said, it doesn't establish what you might colloquially call collusion, if you assume it's true, by anybody other than Paul Manafort, right? This is not Donald Trump saying, yes, they are helping us with the emails, uh, so we will give them (laughs) proprietary campaign information, though I'm sure he wouldn't be morally above doing that. This is Paul Manafort giving stuff to a business colleague, not even clear that Manafort knows what he does with it. So I I don't think it gets you all the way to see there's collusion. It gets you to see Manafort is a really bad guy who is not above dealing with, among other things, Russian intelligence, which we kind of already knew. So I think it's a big deal, but it's not, it doesn't get you all the way there. I just want to wrap this by noting one other thing that was said in the Treasury Department statement uh, where they said uh, that additionally, Kalimnik sought to promote the narrative that Ukraine, not Russia, had interfered in the 2016 presidential election. And uh, uh, that is something we'll all remember that Donald Trump kept uh, foot stomping, as a term we like to use around here, about that it was Ukraine, 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 and not Russia. And as I reported with my colleagues in the Post not long ago, when pressed by a senior White House official, why do you keep saying this? The president responded, because Putin told me. So there you go. (laughs) And Quinta has a shirt that says Putin told me. No, I, I have a sh- I have a shirt that says "Go talk to Rudy." Oh, oh, oh we oh, have a nice. mug. Uh, it's a mug. Okay. I have a mug that says there are many I items. Sorry, I have I have that mug too. It's pretty sweet. Um, let's talk about other colorful people whose name starts with K. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's a good transition. Yeah, it's not bad, right? Yeah. It's not bad at all. Um, the aforementioned Cash Patel, Cash with a K, baby. Um, there's a long, really interesting piece by my colleague David Ignatius, headlined "How Cash Patel Rose from Obscure Hill Staffer to Key Operative in Trump's Battle with the Intelligence Community," a name that will be very well known to listeners of the podcast and people who closely followed. Trump and national security. Susan, I want to turn to you first on this one. There is so much to talk about with Cash Patel, including, by the way, that he apparently was referred as part of a complaint about a leak investigation. Maybe we can talk about that. I will throw out the one part that was new here in this piece from David that was the most eye-popping and frankly distressing to me was that because apparently Cash Patel, who was in some position to do this but didn't, notify the Nigerian government that our military forces were about to jump out of an airplane and mount a hostage rescue in Nigeria. Our people were left, you know, orbiting this site and eventually were able to get the clearance to land. But according to David's reporting, may have uh, jeopardized the hostage rescue, put our hostage and our forces in danger. Um, But Susan, what stood out to you is the most significant thing in this article about this guy who we've all come to to know so well, or thought we did. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I, I do think this little, um, uh, you know, color anecdote about him essentially almost compromising a hostage rescue mission, potentially in a way that might have put SEALs in danger, um, was kind of the most eye-popping thing. Um, but I think it's part of sort of a narrative of, you know, look, these were uh, sort of bumbling people who were out with the absolute worst of intentions in order to, you know, sort of do the president's dirty work and, and politicize the intelligence community and we're really sort of bad actors, um, but ultimately if we're not effective and, and really didn't understand sort of the bureaucracies in which they were operating and were sort of put in these positions that like, you know, they, they didn't understand what was going on. And in some cases, um, you know, their ineptitude could have had really, really significant consequences. I, I do think there's a ton in this piece to sort of unpack and it's a little bit hard to know exactly how to read all the pieces of it. Um, so one is sort of this note that's almost a throwaway line at the beginning, this idea that he's under investigation, um, that there was a referral made by the intelligence community, so not Congress, uh, somebody in the IC, and that he is now the subject of an investigation of some sort. It sort of doesn't say that outright. And so ordinarily, whenever it's called a crimes report, so whenever the U.S. intelligence community identifies that essentially true classified information is now in the public domain, and so therefore it's been leaked, there's been some kind of compromise, they make a referral to the Department of justice, it's called a crimes report, and DOJ then sort of opens it up and investigates it. Uh, ordinarily, a crimes report is sort of about information and not necessarily an individual, although in the course of investigating or in the course of referral, you might say sort of who had that information and reasons to suspect who's involved. Really, really unclear, though, um, sort of this the state of that investigation. Um, I, I think the bigger sort of, um, you know, a head scratcher that I come away with here is whether or not this is a story of, right, sort of Shane, like, on the Forrest Gump model, like this guy who's just kind of everywhere because he's really in it for sort of his own power and self-aggrandizement, this weird thing where he's going to be the deputy CIA director and Gina Haspel sort of refuses. And, and really um, sort of the story about the, the last kind of, you know, 20 days of the Trump administration where Patel is installed as the chief of staff to the Pentagon. And, and there's sort of this story there about how he's really the power in all these things. And he's really the acting DM. He's really running sort of civilian leadership of the Pentagon, and he's like the power behind the throne here. Then, and then they're just all like a deeply nefarious thing going on, although it doesn't quite say what this nefarious end is, like maybe to use the military or US intelligence community to kind of solidify Trump's power. But then there's also sort of these tidbits that I think maybe make me question that a little bit. Um, so there's, there's sort of suggestion that Patel was um, leading uh, the charge to separate NSA and US Cyber Command. Um, and this was really about, you know, some sort of retaliation against General Nakasone for sort of refusing to, to adequately support the president. You know, like that was sort of a, I think, a little bit of a dumb episode. But I think the far more likely explanation for it is that there were this is a longstanding policy issue within the Pentagon and the intelligence community. People knew the administration was about to change. And there are sort of a group of proponents for the split that were trying to sort of at the last minute get their performance policy through before a whole new team came in and they had to convince the new guys. And so I really read things like that as about kind of these inept political uh, actors being worked by the career sort of career civil servants that want sort of their policy to get enacted and formalized in a way that the new administration can't undo. I fully buy that this is all about having sort of bad impulses, but I, I take away more of this story as being somebody who's bumbling and incompetent and not like this is some sort of, you know, near miss nefarious plan that but, but for the grace of God, you know, they they subverted U.S. democracy in, in some important ways, at least Cash Patel's piece of this from from what I read. Yeah, I'm not I, I'm not that sure that this is just some bumbling dude with a bee in his bonnet. I mean, what's clear from this David Ignatius piece is that Patel did have a bee in his bonnet about getting declassified his own report that he wrote for Devin Nunes when he was on the Hill about the origins of the Russia investigation and that he, you know, he and the president and Nunes and a whole lot of other Republicans have long thought that releasing this thing would exonerate the president somehow and that he was pushing really hard to do that, including getting people fired from the ODNI, you know, and pushing 
extant officials to declassify to the point where Bill Barr was the one who finally shut down that effort. So that's, you know, that's not just bumbling. That's pretty determined and ousting officials and pressing officials and endangering sources and methods, according to those officials, in an effort to do that. So we don't know what's in the, you know, that March 2018 Nunes report that he authored. We don't know how much damage it would have done to U.S. national security to release it. We don't know how it might have changed the narrative of the campaign. But that was a very determined, longstanding effort that he and a lot of other people were engaged in. But then if you connect this Ignatius column with the piece he wrote right after Christmas, which in retrospect is an incredibly prescient piece about Republican forces organizing around January 6th to try and prevent the transfer of power, then you start to wonder if you know, maybe not in an entirely coherent or well-formulated manner, there was a broader agenda here of ousting officials in the Pentagon and intelligence community who believed in the rule of law and civilian control and congressional oversight in preparation for perhaps a different kind of Pentagon response to domestic unrest than they had at the end of the day last summer. And we don't know, and we will never know, but David suggests that we might have dodged a bigger bullet than, we, than we've than we understood, and I can't say he's wrong. Quinta, you want to make a quick point, and then we'll go to Ben. Yeah, just on, on the point about declassifications, I mean, I think the the thing that has always confused me about this sort of side quest that so many Trump officials were on is what the end game was. I mean, Tammy, I think you're obviously right that the declassifications could have been incredibly damaging, and we don't we don't know fully. But it always seemed like there was this obsessive desire to declassify as much information as possible. Like for what? For five minutes of a Fox hit, like so Sean Hannity would have something to talk about. It'll be convincing, you know, to Trump's base. It'll make him happy. But at that point, the the story about what had happened in 2016 was so ground in that it struck me as impossible that any new information of any sort would change anyone's mind. And yet there was this kind of, you know, quixotic and the literal like tilting at windmills sense, just quest to kind of unveil as much information as humanly possible, like for no real reason, which for me both adds to the the sort of malice and the bumbling aspect of it all. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, Things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Ben. So I want to raise a different reason to not treat Cash Patel as a bumbling incompetent. And it relates to this report that he wrote for Devin Nunes that Tamara refers to. Uh, so remember that Cash Patel is the author of the famous Nunes memo, which is the memo that uh, first raises the question of failures in the FISA process in connection with the Carter Page FISA. And this triggers eventually a major you know, investigation by the IG that does, in fact, find you know, significant irregularities in the Carter Page FISA. So I, I do think, first of all, Kash Patel was onto something in that. And you know, I've spent a lot of time with that IG report and that memo. And he definitely like he definitely had some some interesting observations in there. Now, this second memo about which I was previously unaware before this column that he, this report that he wrote for Devin Nunes, 
I think there is an interesting question about how consequential this report has been inside of the government. And here's the reason that I raise this question, and I don't know the answer to it. You'll recall that when Bill Barr comes into office, he immediately develops conspiracy theories about where the Russia investigation came from, how it started. And he starts questioning the so-called ICA, the Intelligence Community Assessment, right? And we've all, we were all at the time scratching our heads and saying, why is Bill Barr questioning the ICA? What possible basis does he have to be thinking that the Russia investigation did not start the way it started? Well, it turns out there's a report that Devin Nunes wrote, that Cash Patel wrote for him, I wonder if that may have placed some of those ideas in the head of the new attorney general. Second thing, Barr then appoints John Durham, who mysteriously goes on a quest to find out, uh, to start, he starts questioning the intelligence community assessment and the origins of the Russia investigation. Where did he get that idea? And it Again, it turns out there's this Devin Nunes, this other Devin Nunes report written by Cash Patel. Now, eventually, Durham turns away from this, and eventually Barr stops talking about this because it's all bullshit. But I wonder if Cash Patel actually played a role in putting this on the agenda of the Attorney General of the United States and a special prosecutor who's been looking at this for two years. So that's, I, I just want to float that, like, the conspiracy theories that this guy has been peddling turn out to have had a lot of, of credence and, in, in, and consequence in, in the upper echelons of, of the administration. And by the way, it takes Gina Haspel threatening to resign and Bill Barr, the same Bill Barr, putting his foot down and saying, we are not going to declassify this in order to put it to rest. And so I, I actually think it's worth taking Cash Patel pretty seriously as an operator who had major consequences. Look, and, and just to clarify, I'm not saying he's bumbling in the sense of he's not, he didn't do damage, right? I, I more mean that the story that I'm reading is not one in which he has a very coherent, like sort of strategic goal beyond just intelligence community, deep state, bad, Russia hoax collusion, you know, sort of push people out. And so what I see here is just somebody sort of throwing things against the wall. Some of them are totally absurd, getting on a plane and showing up at Steele's office, Christopher Steele's place of business in London, the whole unmasking controversy, all of these things that they try and inflate and just sort of go nowhere and end up really making them, you know, look incredibly foolish. And, and yes, on some things, they like they managed to get a little bit more traction. But I, I more mean sort of similar to, to, I think, the point Quinto's making, which is like, uh, you know, this isn't someone who had a, a 10 point plan, uh, you know, that, that ends with, you know, subverting you know, the U.S. election. It's I just see it as sort of like a, an agent of chaos who's trying to, you know, harm the intelligence community and, and harm anyone who he views as sort of an enemy of, of the president, his agenda, and sometimes does a huge amount of damage, but isn't uh, in service of this like very, very thoughtful or coherent goal. But I, I agree. We actually can't know. I will say in Cash Patel's defense, showing up randomly at somebody's office to ask them questions is a classic investigative reporter technique. <laughs> so, which, you know. which would be a great explanation if he were an investigative reporter. <laughs> he, he's I, at I don't, Fox, I don't, so he I, must be a real journalist. I don't know if he's at Fox. I just know he's been on Fox a lot. That's not narrowing it down. All right. Well, let's move on to the global threats hearing where, to be clear, Cash Patel was not mentioned, at least not in the report. Although the guy he used to work for played a leading role. And we'll get to that in a little bit. The global threats hearing, I mean, basically, it can be summed up as um, China, 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 climate change. There was a lot of time spent on the strategic threat posed by China, economically, politically, militarily, on the cross-cutting issues of climate change, which, of course, China will play a big role 
and how the world responds to that threat. A lot of individual talk about Russia, Iran. I mean, it was it was a pretty jam-packed set of issues, both in the hearing and in the statement in the report that accompanied this hearing. And of course, that was coming a week after the quadrennial global threats assessment that the DNI's office put out, which kind of was a lot of the same flavor and themes, I thought. Um, So Tammy, it's important to note at the start of this that there was no global threats hearing in the last year of the Trump administration. And of course, when they did occur in previous years, they were just like suffused with this nervous energy because officials didn't want to piss off Trump by saying, you know, oh, I don't know, Russia was trying to undermine our elections and help the president get elected. This hearing, for the most part, and we'll talk about the most the other parts in a minute, was a pretty sober assessment by the Biden administration of the world's problems. I thought at times it felt almost overwhelming. Um, like you're like this is this is the way the world is, and it looks pretty grim. What, what stood out to you, either you know from the optics of it or the substance or both? So I think a couple of things. The first, going to your point about you know the way intelligence officials had to walk on eggshells doing these briefings during the Trump administration. You know, so one of the first questions you have about this year's global threats hearing is. Does it get to be a return to business as usual on national security where um, members of Congress, you know, soberly probe sober threats with the, the heads of the intelligence community? And the answer to that is, you know, yeah, mostly on the Senate side and not at all on the House side. <laughs> but I think the other thing that really stood out to me is, you know, this was in a way that you couldn't say about the Trump era briefings, the beginning of a rigorous look at the national security threat profile post-global war on terror. And that's because it comes along with the announcement about the Afghanistan withdrawal And, you know, I think the Biden administration really consciously trying to map out, okay, if we're not doing a global war on terror anymore, and we're not going to be in Iraq and Afghanistan in a major way anymore, how do we handle the remaining threat from Islamist extremist violence? How do we prevent that from reemerging as something that's going to force us to redeploy combat troops in ways we don't want to? And, you know, how do we talk about threats like the threats from China and Russia without turning them into kind of the new version of the global war on terror, right? So this was their first crack at that. So part of the reason why it felt like there was just so much is because I think they they haven't quite figured out what's the overarching frame. In that context, I think one of the things that was really interesting was Bill Burns trying to explain how the United States plans to keep monitoring terrorist threats, even, you know, in the places that it's leaving. And the question that lurks under there of how much risk are we willing to accept on that front? That plays into the Afghanistan debate we're having now, and it plays into the political risk that this president is taking. And, you know, I'm not sure there's a clear answer to that question yet. If I were a member of Congress, that's something I would want to probe some more. There was also this interesting, you know, I hesitate to call it a formulation. It was an assessment, a kind of a conclusion. And you heard Burns saying this and, and Haynes that basically comes down to, Al-Qaeda and ISIS aren't in Afghanistan anymore, and we don't think that once we leave, they will just magically regroup because, as Burns put it, the Taliban is ideologically opposed to ISIS and will try to fight them. And we also believe that the Taliban is going to make good on commitments not to turn Afghanistan into a safe haven again. But it's kind of like they're saying, like, look, the bad guys are in other places right now, and we're doing a pretty good job of attacking them there as well, which I thought was kind of an interesting way of talking about or sort of preemptively, you know, answering the question, the concern about the Afghanistan pullout. Uh, and, you know, we'll see whether it turns out to be correct. But at least in the in the near term, it seemed like, you know, mildly persuasive. Tammy. Yeah, I just think that there's a there's a question about allocation of resources across the IC. Right. And they've been signaling even during the Trump era, signaling that they were shifting resources from the CT mission to great power competition This hearing had a lot of China, as you noted, and talking about what they're doing to beef up their capabilities on China 
intelligence collection and analysis. But, you know, unless you're going to grow the IC tremendously, that means that you're reducing resources that are being applied elsewhere. And so you are taking on more risk elsewhere. Yeah. So, Ben, I want to talk to you about the difference between the two hearings. There was one in the Senate on the first day. It was a two-day event. That was pretty much, I mean, it was pretty bipartisan. It was kind of a model of the of the sober bipartisan hearing that I think most people would like to see where Republicans and Democrats are asking, you know, probing pretty serious questions. I will say most of them were softballs, I thought. The House hearing was not that. And almost to a person. Show. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about why. Because Democrats asked, and I was counting this up as I covered it. You know, to a person, we're asking about global threats, hence the title of, of the uh, of the hearing. Uh, and you could argue about whether those were softballs or not, but they were germane to the subject. And Republicans, almost without exclusion, asked about the Steele dossier and Carter Page and kept returning to this theme that the FBI is spying on Republicans and is somehow out to get the GOP. And that seemed really significant to me and maybe even new because we're used to hearing the Russia hoax rhetoric from Republican House members and particularly from Devin Nunes, who Gash Patel used to work for. They talk about that a lot, but they really went after Chris Ray directly this time. And I wonder if you agree that that was significant and new and what you make of it. So I don't think it's that new, to be honest. I think the Republicans have tried to turn every security issue into a discussion of the Steele dossier for a, quite a while. No, no, now. that part's not new. The attack on the FBI part is what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm, so I'm... Like the FBI I'm, I'm, is get out to undermine the Republican Party was the line of this entire hearing. You know, if you go back to Merrick Garland's confirmation hearing... You know, that was the gist of Ted Cruz's line of questioning to him was like, you know, wasn't Bill Barr trying to depoliticize the Justice Department following, you know, the terrible abuses of the Obama years, like the, you know, Fast and Furious and and the, you know, IRS abuses and and the Steele dossier. I mean, Uh, The degree to which it dominates everything is growing, but I don't think it's a particularly new theme. And I do think, you know, from the Republican point of view, if you allow, and this is getting into the little bit of the subconscious of it, I think, if you allow that Russia is a real threat, the question of why, why you are playing footsie with it becomes a very awkward question. And it's much psychologically easier to have the story be, there is no Russia problem, there's an FBI problem. And they've been moving in that direction for a good long time now. So yeah, I did think the the degree to which that issue dominates is growing. But I also do think it's, you know, it didn't take me completely by surprise. Let's put it that way. Well, Quinn, I actually have a question to, and respond to, you know, anything else you want to do in the hearing. But one thing that struck me is, I think, I take Ben's point. Yes. I mean, it's like the attacks on, you know, the FBI is saying you're out to get conservatives, not new. I guess it felt like in a way to me, it was almost like they were moving off. To, you're trying to get Donald Trump towards, you're trying to get anyone with an R next to his name. But, totally. you know, but Quinn, I wonder, because like you and Evelyn Dweck spend so much great time focusing in your Arbors of Truth series on disinformation and the way that... You know, at least what I think of it when I tell you guys talk is that somehow sometimes political rhetoric can evolve out of just standard issue spin towards alternate reality narratives that just take on a life of their own and become infectious. And I wonder to what extent when you hear Republicans going after the FBI and pounding the table on this, is it does it strike you more as like tried and true political rhetoric and they don't really believe this stuff, but they're just going to say it? Or is there some kind of narrative that's taking hold in the Republican Party that U.S. law enforcement is fundamentally out to undermine one of the two parties and and basically try to neutralize, you know, quote unquote, conservatives? Well, to to paraphrase a meme, why not both? Uh, I think there's <laughs> there's no real way to know, right? 
in the heart of any individual Republican member of Congress, right? Like, I think we can say, you know, it's probably more likely that like Mo Brooks really believes this in his heart than it is that Ted Cruz really believes it in his heart. Like there's a spectrum. But at the end of the day, it's impossible to say where anyone is along that spectrum. I do think the the kind of rhetoric that we're talking about, I think, is actually a really good example of how odd our current situation is because the sort of rhetoric around disinformation and anxiety around disinformation kicked up after 2018 with worry about, you know, Russian trolls, foreign influence. And I think what's really become clear in the years since, particularly since the January 6th riot, is that, you know, the call is coming from inside the House, right? It's I think that the having hearings where members of Congress make statements about how the FBI is persecuting Republicans really brings home how impossible it is to address quote unquote disinformation without addressing where it's coming from, which is that the Republican Party is completely off the rails and is sort of sailing through an alternative universe. And so I don't know what the solution is. <laughs> I think it it underlines just how far we've we've gone. One thing I was going to say in response to Ben's point is that I I wrote an essay early on in the Trump administration about how many liberals sort of had found themselves newly enamored of the FBI and the intelligence community thanks to Trump's attacks on it and sort of wondering whether we were going to see a lasting political realignment in terms of how the the two parties understood their relationships with law enforcement and the intelligence community. I don't want to say it's been a 180 flip because that would be going way too far. Obviously, there's a huge range of opinion within the Democratic Party. But it does seem that because this sort of, I don't even know what to call it, alternative reality, false narrative, whatever you want, has really cemented in a certain segment of the Republican Party to the extent that another segment of the Republican Party is willing to cater to it, that we may really be seeing to some level a sort of a lasting change in how quote unquote, mainstream Republicans relate to law enforcement in the IC. Yeah, so I I guess a little bit disagree with the newness of all of this, right? I mean, the Obama years were dominated. A lot of these intelligence hearings were dominated with Benghazi stuff, right? So this idea of sort of quasi-fantastical political narratives and sort of these weird hearings in which Republicans were off on one direction and Democrats, and it's just like an alternate universe. I, mean, I actually think that feature is it, that it actually predates Trump, and at least we were seeing it sort of, um, you know, towards the end of the Obama administration. I, I think the interesting question is, you know, we're going to have FISA reauthorization. There actually are likely going to be substantive changes not necessarily linked to, but in some ways driven by some of this craziness, right? And so because of the sunset provisions, because of uh, genuine concerns um, about sort of whether or not the safeguards functioned properly. And I, I think you know, a lot of evidence that they did not function properly um, sort of in the FISA context. And so I, I think the, the sort of the, the interesting question is how is this narrative going to set the legislative landscape, especially whenever we're seeing a weird bifurcation within the Republican Party in the House in particular, between members who are actually focused on legislation um, and maybe do or do not buy in to some degree you know, into these various sort of Fox News or whatever else uh, sort of narratives. Um, and then people who are only interested in sort of the public part of it and like don't, don't appear to get involved. Like they're just, they're kind of media, I guess, and almost sort of political commentators more than actual members of Congress. And so how much is sort of, is, is one going to drive the other? Um, the, the other sort of piece here, and I do think it's interesting to see sort of who they're going after and sort of targeting Chris Ray versus DNI Haynes versus others. Um, during the Trump uh, era, we had a few credible voices, you know, who could speak to elements of the Democrat of, of uh, sort of Democrats in Congress and sort of the Democratic Party more broadly in a way that had baseline credibility. And I think one question is who in the Biden administration and who in this era is going to be able to be that national security voice that speaks to Republicans with a lot of credibility or with sort of baseline credibility because you need that sort of life raft. And so I think there's a little bit of evidence that um, maybe DNI Haynes might come out to do that, maybe CIA Director Burns. Clearly the Republicans are not interested in Chris Ray and think he's sort of been tainted by um, uh, things that happened before. But I, I do that, think that's sort of one macro trend to look for 
for in these hearings and engagements, because um, at the end of the day, if we want, you know, sort of reform and, and restoration and bipartisan consensus, you know, that means getting buy-in from across the aisle as well. And so, you know, who, who's going to play that role in the long term? All right, let us move on to object lessons. Uh, ben, why don't you kick us off? So this past week, Tamara and I had occasion to watch the HBO documentary series Q Into the Storm. And I want to say that it is too long. Yeah, needed it, a good editor. It did in six episodes what could have been done in three or four. And... It may be a little too sympathetic in some ways to some genuinely sociopathic people. So not without my criticisms of it. And yet it is completely riveting and everybody should watch it. Almost the least interesting thing about it is that it out outs Q. The really interesting thing about it is the portrait of the people who run 8chan, which turned into 8Q, and the utterly disgusting, completely without redeeming qualities group of people who gather around these sites that are that exist for the sole reason that 4chan is too restrictive <laughs> in its content moderation. And Not um, enough shit posts. Yeah, that's like they, they even 4chan turns out to have its line. This is a group of people who started a new website because they were outraged by the crackdown on the Gamergate perpetrators. And, you know, it would be altogether unimportant, except that they loosed Q on the world. And the makers of this documentary do an extraordinary job, despite the length in portraying how this genuinely sociopathic group of people came to play an important role in our politics. And I think it's genuinely worth people's time and it will nauseate you. Oh boy. That's, <laughs> that last bits are ringing into it. There's watch, an endorsement. Watch this, throw up. Uh, <laughs> Susan. Yeah, so my object lesson um, is uh, an anniversary um, that uh, I think is sort of worth noting and also made me feel sort of old, um, which is that uh, April 19th was the 26th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. I don't know sort of um, where others were, but this is actually the event that I think is um, the first major national security incident that really sort of penetrated my consciousness. Um, both of my parents worked in the federal building, um, not in Oklahoma City, but, uh, but in California where we lived. Um, and it's the first time I saw security change in real time. Um, I used to go and uh, go to my parents' office after school and I would just waltz in and, and sort of being a kid and seeing the concrete barriers being constructed, sort of the difference in the ways trucks were allowed to even come down to sort of, you know, come into the downtown space. And, um, you know, really sort of the, the first time, um, I, I think for myself and really probably for a, a larger generation of people who've um, gotten involved in national security, you know, that, that really was a, a formative event. And of course, I'm a formative event for uh, the current Attorney General Merrick Garland, um, who was uh, uh, oversaw that prosecution. Um, and so I, I was just struck by it in particular because I, I saw and was reminded by it um, by a tweet by Josh Geltzer, who's now uh, in the White House, um, advising on counterterrorism and domestic terrorism in particular, um, and sort of thinking about the sort of the full circle nature of it and the kind of cyclical nature of things and how, um, you know, domestic terrorism and this form of extremism was the sort of animating principle, you know, 25 years ago and, and so much time and attention was devoted to it. And then, you know, sort of moving on to, to other things and, and uh, you know, obviously 9-11 and, and sort of the, the community and, and field transforming its conception of threats. And, and to think that um, we're back again into a moment in which, um, you know, domestic terrorism and domestic extremism is, is such a salient um, risk and sort of what are the lessons and um, are we relearning lessons that um, we missed or, or should have uh, sort of learned the first time. And um, so obviously a, a huge 
hugely sad anniversary. And, you know, for, for young people who maybe don't remember it, um, you know, a really, really devastating event. Children were killed in it. Um, so a really sad thing. And, and sort of thinking about the survivors and their families and, the, and their colleagues across the federal government, but also um, just sort of marking it as, um, a, a, you know, an important anniversary in the development of this field and um, a little bit of an opportunity to reflect on um, how we might learn some different lessons and, and move forward um, to be sort of safer uh, in the future. Very good. My object is not solemn. I'm just going to go ahead and warn you. So for those who have been following along with the enduring mystery about what are those lights in the sky, particularly surrounding uh, aircraft carriers and having close encounters with military jets, uh, which you know we've obviously talked a lot about on this podcast, I want to recommend an article, keeping with the theme of the QAnon documentary, uh, is too long, but it's in um, uh, the uh, the publication The War Zone, which is published by The Drive. And they've actually done a lot of really good work through FOIA of getting a lot of like log reports of these incidents from ships made into the public domain. Uh, and have probably done some of the most like interesting, actually advancing the ball reporting from a very skeptical and objective point of view uh, on this subject. And uh, one of their main writers on this, Tyler Rogaway, has this long piece in which he basically makes the argument, much to my disappointment, that no, you're not seeing alien spacecraft. You're seeing drones and balloons from adversary services, most likely China and Russia. And this should really scare the shit out of you too, because the military keeps acting like they're UFOs when in fact these things should be identifiable. And he kind of makes this argument that says, basically, this looks like historic instances of what we've seen of where an adversary service, and by the way, we have done this too, will actually float balloons uh, and put up other unmanned objects to trigger an enemy's air defense systems or radar systems or other sensors into turning on so that we can both see how they respond and then essentially try to head fake them and make them think that they're seeing something that they're not. Aha, sound familiar? And he's not saying like this is what happened and he's not saying it's what happens in all cases, but he is saying that in some of these more notable incidents that have recently come out in which swarms of something were definitely around uh, naval ships. Uh, he's saying like, yeah, 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 they're not aliens. They're probably like Chinese drones that may have, by the way, been put there by a submersible that like popped out of the water and then went back. And that should also scare you because if we can't identify like a Chinese submarine in the vicinity of an aircraft carrier, what the fuck are we doing? Um, so it's a really interesting piece that lays out in great length with a lot of evidence and is not at all speculative. He even, you know, I think he would love it if they were aliens, frankly. Uh, but I highly recommend it. It's good. And you should check out the other work that these guys have done too on the subject. I know you would love it if it were aliens. I'm I would, sorry. I would. I would. I, that, I think guys, we should take up a collection to buy this person, I don't know, a beer, many beers as the first <laughs> individual to persuade Shane that, you yeah. know what, it probably is not aliens. Um, you, sir, are a hero. Welcome to the cause. Um, and if you're ever in the Washington, D.C. area, I, I yeah. will buy you a drink and shake your hand. You have done the, what, what the rest of us have been unable to achieve these many years. So everybody in the audience, retweet this article, you know. Make it and, go viral. And tag Shane when you do. I will this. say. Several readers said it to me, and some even on private DM, like, you know, because they didn't want to talk about it openly being like, did you see this? Like, what are we going to do? <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know. And to be clear, I did not. I did not at Tyler Rogaway. <laughs> they on view you as their leader, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> How are you feeling? Are you okay? Did you read this? Are you upset? Uh, it's really good. You should check it out. It's so good if you have like three hours to read it. Do your own research, people. <laughs> That's it. We're ending I've this podcast. I've shame now. <laughs> podcast is over. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find, um, you know, like, I still believe the truth is out there t-shirts uh, at uh -huh. xfiles.lawfarestore.com. 
Yes. I'm, I'm with Shane. TheLawfareStore.com. <laughs> you can get your I Still Believe shirts. Yeah. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can find us on Facebook. We're still on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out. And be sure to share rational security with your friends whether they be flying around in space alien ships or just like hanging on to Chinese balloons, whatever. They would all benefit from hearing this discussion. Our audio engineer this week was Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week by Cash Patel and Constantine Kalimnik and their new Kesha cover band. Yours. I thought, I thought you that were cover band with, with a K? With, with yeah. Cash, yes. Cash Patel's new punk band, The Cash. No. Oh no! Come on, man. Rock the cash. Leave bar. it to the professionals, man. The, the clash. The cash. That's, that's how up on pop culture. See, see he got it now. He's laughing because yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. He's laughing. No, no, we got it, Ben. We we got it. Yeah. Cash Patel is going to change his name to be like Kesha. It's going to be like with a dollar sign instead of an S. Yeah, there you go. It's going to be really good. It's going to be really good, but he, he still can't afford Sophia Yan to back up that band. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, Susan Hennessy, and Quinta Jurisic, I am Shane Harris. We will talk to you all next week. Keep on believing. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.